The last several weeks in 1 John, <clears throat> we've been talking about the love of God, right? And how, how we should be loving one another. Um, the sermons have focused on that. I've been trying as best as I can to reflect what John's doing, which is kind of laying into his people, right? Like, you need to be loving. You need to be loving to each other, and this is how you love. And a lot, a lot of the book of 1 John is centered around that, like what we should be doing as Christians. John mentions the commandments that Christ gives us several times. In fact, we read just last week in chapter 4, verse 21, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Okay, so the commandments come up frequently. And if we're not careful, we may start to think that John prioritizes the things we're supposed to do as Christians over faith. If we're not careful readers of 1 John, we can come to that conclusion. And the rest of the book, really, is all about faith. We focused on love a lot, but now John is going to leave the idea of us loving one another behind. He has told us what he thinks on that, and now the rest of the book is about faith and how we can only be saved through faith in Christ. So, let's stand together and read 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 4 through verse 12. Now, last week we, we read a little bit of verse 4, but we're going to read all of it this week too. So, here we go. This is the word of the Lord from 1 John 5, starting in verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. And whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let's pray as you're seated. Thank you, Lord, for your word today. <clears throat> we submit ourselves to it. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage is all about faith. Faith in Jesus. It's all about how we should place our faith in Jesus and it's about the experience of those who place their faith in Jesus. But surprisingly, John starts with that second one. So first, the experience of faith. Let's look back really quick to part of our text from last week, starting in verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Last week, we were once again commanded to love. But John makes sure to tell Christians that this love, loving one another, is not burdensome. It's not difficult because 
through Christ, we have overcome the world and the worldliness on our own hearts. But how have we overcome the world? That's where we start this week. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. We are victorious over the world through faith. Faith is the thing that brings victory over the world. How else can I say it, right? And remember, the world is that domain of demonic influence. That's what the world means for John, especially in this book. We are victorious over that domain of demonic influence, the domain of darkness, by faith. And this kind of militaristic talk of victory is common throughout the New Testament, uh, especially to refer to the Christian experience. So 1 Corinthians 15, 57, Paul says this, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right here, God is the one that supplies the victory. And Romans 8, 37, once again, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And Paul here tells us that in Christ... We are conquerors over the things that seek to separate us from God's love. In both of these instances, we are victorious because of Jesus, because of what God has done. And that's exactly what John is saying here. In John chapter 16, the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, Take heart, I have overcome the world. So it's important that we understand what John is saying here when he says that faith is what brought the victory. He's not saying that any old faith will do. He's saying that only faith placed in Jesus Christ is what brings victory. Because Jesus is the one who won. He is the one that has the victory over the world, over sin, over death, over the devil. He has the victory over all those, th- all those things through his death on the cross. We're We're only truly victorious through him, because of him. That's what John says here in verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And that's a rhetorical question, right? No one has victory, victory over the world apart from Jesus. So if you are in Jesus today, you have victory. Amen. Okay, great. Right? We have victory in Christ. But why is that such an important idea? And it really is. It's an important idea for you as a Christian to know you have victory in Christ. Why is it important that you know that? I think one of the biggest lies that Satan tries to tell us and that he tries to make us believe is that we have to work really hard before we can be sure that we're saved. It's one of the biggest things Satan uses to discourage us. And look, all of us have a long way to go, right? Until we're dead, the Spirit is going to uncover new sins in our hearts and show us how we need God's grace every day. Praise the Lord. That's his work right now. But the Spirit only continues that work, his his sanctifying work in our hearts because we have first been justified because we have first been given the victory. You are saved by grace through faith, not through works. So you may look at your life and think, man, I wish I had victory. I wish I had victory over this sin or that thought. Or you might think, 
Once I get this thing under control and win this battle, I know I'll finally have the victory. But that's not what this says. You have victory in Christ today. Remember what John said back in chapter 4, verse 4. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Again, Satan wants you to believe that you have to claw your way out of the world. But that's not true. You have victory over the world, the domain of the devil, through faith in Christ. That's a fact if you are in him. That is your experience. This statement here in verse 4, 5-4, is a statement of assurance. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So it should bring us great comfort to know that we, we've experienced the victory of Christ through faith. Have you experienced the victory of Christ? Have you overcome the world through Jesus? It's only possible by faith, not through any effort, not through any work. So if you've experienced this victory in Christ, then then you can actually rest today. Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our rest And he is our rest because he's also our victory. And knowing that victory, you can can rest because knowing you know that it's not based on something you've done. Right? But only on the work that Christ has done on the cross. It's a good reminder for us. This is a really good reminder for us because we we tend to forget that we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Freedom from sin victory over addiction, separation from the world is all yours in Christ through faith. Praise the Lord. It's already accomplished. It is finished on the cross. You have victory in him. But again, not any old faith will do. So John's next move, the rest of the passage, is to spend some serious time on exactly what we need to place our faith in. So second, the object of faith. Before we dive into the water and the blood and exactly how we should understand these things, let's first read verse 11. Look at verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. In the original language, Greek, the word that is translated as some form of the word testify here occurs no less than 10 times in this passage. 10 times. So it's important that we start by understanding what the testimony is. And in verse 11, we're given exactly that. So first, it's the fact that God has given believers eternal life. And that's a similar statement to what we read in chapter 2, verse 25, which says, and this is the purpose that, or the promise that he made to us, eternal life. It was also the title for Christ, if you'll remember, all the way back to the very first sermon in 1 John, chapter 1, verse 2. John says, we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Jesus Christ is eternal life. To have eternal life, to be given eternal life by God is to have Jesus. So we shouldn't be surprised when he goes on to the second part of the testimony. Which says, and this life is in his son. 
the major interpretive question surrounding verses 6 through 8 is, what is it that testifies? Right? What do the water and the blood represent? We'll get into that. But it's important that we start with the testimony itself. The testimony is that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whatever it is that does the testifying testifies to that truth. So let's go back to verse 6 and work through this together. Verse 6. This is he who came. Okay, let's pause. Let's stop right there. If we want to know what the water and the blood are, we have to start with that opening phrase. When talking about Jesus, if John talks about the coming of the Lord, he's always referring to the incarnation. This is he who came. Chapter 4, verse 2 is a great example. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So the water and the blood are going to have to do with Christ's incarnation, that he came to us. Water is mentioned first. But let's look at what John means by blood and then move on to water. Blood will help us interpret what water means. For John, Jesus' blood always refers to the death of Christ. It's through the blood of Jesus that we're cleansed from sin, according to chapter 1, verse 7. So for Jesus to come by blood and for the blood to testify means that we can know we have eternal life and that the life is in his son, partially because of the death of Christ. The blood refers to the death of Christ. He comes to us by blood through his death, his sacrifice. So the blood is his death, the blood he shed on the cross. But John says he also came by water. This has been understood in many different ways. Some see it as a reference to Jesus' physical birth. Some see it as the water that flowed from his side mixed with blood on the cross when he was pierced with the spear. And some see the water and the blood as references to the two ordinances that Jesus gave to the church, baptism and communion. And while those are interesting takes, I don't think any of them are really what John is talking about. Look again at verse 6. Let's read it again. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Not by the water only. John is dealing with individuals who are claiming that Jesus came only by water. And he's trying to correct that assertion, not by water only, but also by the blood. So what could water be in reference to that could stand alone on its own and serve false teachers? I think the best understanding of water here is in reference to Jesus' baptism. In the Gospel of John, John the Baptist bears witness about the baptism of Jesus when he says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. The Gospel of Luke recounts the baptism of Jesus like this in chapter 3. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. 
In the baptism of Christ, we see the direct testimony, the audible testimony of God concerning his son. Jesus' baptism was a declaration from God that we should listen to and follow him. It was the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. It was the Father's stamp of approval. So the water of Jesus' baptism is truly a witness to the eternal life that can be found in Jesus and by nobody else. But why would a false teacher emphasize his baptism? Or better yet, why would a false teacher want to say that Jesus' death isn't as important if they're saying Jesus came only by the water and not by the blood? No. We don't know the exact problem that John is facing when he's writing this to his churches. And it's important to know that the churches that John is writing to know exactly what he's talking about, right? They live in a community together where they have a shared language, and they know exactly what's going on. But we can only interpret the best that we can. Why would a false teacher emphasize the water and not the blood? Well, there was a, there was a false teacher who was a contemporary of John named Serinthus. And Serinthus was a false prophet, and he was a precursor to a, mo- a movement known as adoptionism, okay? And he believed that Jesus of Nazareth was just a man, a normal man, but that at his baptism, the Spirit of Christ descended on him and made him Jesus Christ. And at that moment, he became the Son of God, okay? That God adopted him in that moment. But he also taught that at Christ's death, or right before the death of Christ, the Spirit of Christ left the man, Jesus of Nazareth, and that Jesus' death really was just the death of a normal guy. So this guy, Serinthus, was around the same time as John, and it's highly likely that all along, the secessionists, the people that left John's church, had fallen prey to this guy's false teaching, that this was what they had believed. And John is writing to the church in part to remind them that Serinthus was wrong. It could be. Jesus' baptism, the water, again, was definitely a witness to the eternal life that can be found in Christ. But this false teacher made it the only witness, right? His death didn't matter, and the ministry of Christ was the only thing that mattered. His baptism, Jesus' baptism, is incredibly important. Because right there you see a picture of the whole Trinity together. And the Father declares that Jesus is his Son. So the waters of baptism is a strong witness to the fact that only through Christ can we find eternal life. But it's not the only witness. And John wants to make us aware of that. We also have the blood, his death. And we have the Holy Spirit. Serinthus was a false teacher because he got it wrong. Jesus was God from his conception by the Holy Spirit, through his resurrection and ascension. Jesus wasn't adopted as the Son of God. He wasn't just a man and then declared to be something else. He was always the Son of God, even at his death, which means in Jesus Christ, God died. And for Serinthus, he couldn't get that through his head, right? For these false teachers. But as Christians, we believe that through the death of Jesus Christ, sin was dealt with. 
And if you get rid of the death of Christ, you don't have salvation. So it's by the water and the blood, right? It's by the water and the blood. But it's also through the Spirit. And these three testify. The Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. That's the end of verse 6. We can't neglect the Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit of truth, John says. What the Spirit says concerning eternal life in Jesus is incredibly important because for John, the Spirit always points back to the Son. Always. Remember again back to chapter 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. How can you know if some random Bible teacher is of the Spirit of God? You can know if they get Jesus right. Right? Because the Holy Spirit always influences Christians to believe in Jesus and call him Lord. Let me say that again. If you have an idea of the Holy Spirit that uh, that's, he's all that really matters, let me say this again. The Holy Spirit always influences Christians to believe in Jesus and call him Lord. The Spirit does not place emphasis on himself. He always shines a spotlight on Christ. The Son reveals the Father, and the Spirit points to the Son. In John 15, 26, Jesus says of the Spirit, but when the Helper, talking about the Spirit, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. That's what the Spirit does. He is the Spirit of truth, and Jesus is the truth. He testifies about the Son. And so in verse 7 and 8, we read, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. They agree. They agree and confirm the witness, the testimony. John gives us three witnesses. Okay, That was the standard number in the Old Testament for witnesses needed to prove something in the Jewish court. The Spirit, the water, and the blood all testify to the truth that God gives us eternal life and that eternal life is only found in the Son. The water testifies to the fact that Jesus was sent by the Father The blood testifies to the fact that the Son paid the price. And the Spirit testifies to the fact of the Son's ongoing work. Okay, so it's a Trinitarian witness. The Father tells us who the Son is at His baptism. The Son does the work of salvation in His death. And the Spirit bears witness in our hearts about Jesus right now. And that's why in some of your Bibles, if you have the King James or the New King James, you have another phrase that was written later and brought into the King James that talks about the heavenly witness of the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's called the Johannine comma. If you have questions about that, we can talk about it after. Come ask me. It was added in much later Greek manuscripts, like 1400s late, and not found in the oldest ones. And that's why our more modern Bibles don't have it. But it's not wrong. The witness is Trinitarian. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit declare to us that the Son of God gives us eternal life. That is the testimony. So in a very real sense, the Spirit, the water, and the blood is the testimony of the triune God. And so John says in verse 9, If we receive the testimony of men, 
the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he's born concerning his son. Just like last week, John makes a logical argument from the weaker to the stronger. If we would accept the testimony or witness of men in a courtroom, shouldn't we also accept the testimony of God? Isn't that much greater than the testimony of men? And he tells us this is his testimony, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And through Jesus' earthly ministry, his death on the cross, and his ongoing ministry in heaven, you can have eternal life in him. That is God's words, God's testimony, his witness to us. And whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in himself. Verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. If you believe it, it's part of you. The Spirit witnesses to these truths in our hearts. That's that's what it means to have it in ourselves. Do you have the testimony of God as a sure belief in your heart? It's not a leap of faith based on a myth. It's faith based on the testimony or witness of God. So do you believe God? Because John goes on in verse 10 to say, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. I've heard people say something like this. You know, religion, your religion is fine. It's fine for you. Uh, It gets you through your day, but it's not for me. Or Christianity is your truth, But it's not everybody's truth. Everybody has their truth. But according to John, unbelief is not a morally neutral position. If you refuse to believe the evidence that God puts forward, his witness, his testimony, if you refuse the testimony of the triune God, that's the same as saying to him, you're a liar. Martin Luther, the great reformer, had a wonderful comment on this passage. He said, God should not be sought or known except through his testimony. For to be unwilling to be content with the manner in which God wants to be found by us, but to seek and prescribe one's own manner to find God, is to actually find the devil. So God has placed it before you. His testimonies right here. Through Jesus Christ, verse 11, you can have eternal life because of his life, death, and resurrection. That's it. God bears witness to it. God himself, the triune God. That's the only correct object of faith. Jesus Christ. Do you want to have the experience of victory that we talked about in verses 4 and 5? Well, you need the right object. And it's Jesus. Verse 12 is very clear. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. There's no in-between. If you have the Son, you have life. Praise the Lord. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. There's no other way to God but through His Son. You can't know God without Jesus as much as you try. So, 
Do you know Jesus? Ultimately, it all comes back to faith. This week is all about faith. The book of Hebrews tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. There was a, there was a Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. He lived and wrote in the middle of the, the 1800s, which was at the height of the so-called Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was all about how great human reason was and how through reason, our thinking, we can actually know things. Well, Kierkegaard saw a problem for Christianity in the Enlightenment. You see, Christianity makes all of these miraculous claims about reality, right? Jesus was born of a virgin, he died on a cross, and he rose from the grave. Kierkegaard said that to human reason, this was all too much. But his solution was to say this, that even though we know it flies in the face of reason, we have to take a leap of faith and believe. That's where we get that phrase from, leap of faith. Okay? In his mind, faith was opposed to reason. It was the opposite of reason. He would say that even in the face of a lot of reasons not to believe, we need to have faith. Now, I don't know if Kierkegaard was a Christian or not. He certainly said he believed in Jesus, so we'll take him at his face value. But I think he got this wrong. He had it all wrong. That's not biblical faith at all. And that's never how any of the authors of the scriptures talk about faith. The whole point of this passage, 1 John 5, 4 through 12, is to show us that God himself, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, testifies to the truth. What we believe does not fly in the face of reason. In fact, it would be unreasonable, unreasonable to be confronted with the truth of the gospel and spit in God's face. It calls him a liar. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. It's not a leap into the darkness. It's not an idiotic attempt at hope and optimism. Faith is looking at what God has said and done and realizing it is the truth. The problem is, the problem is, we are so full of sin that faith is impossible without a work of God on our hearts. Kierkegaard had it wrong because he downplayed the impact of sin on the mind and on our hearts and on every part of us. Sin is so pervasive that without the infiltration of the Holy Spirit on our minds and on our hearts and on our being, we can't see what's right in front of us. Living in sin is like walking around in the world with blue-tinted glasses without knowing it. Nothing appears as it actually is, but you don't know any better. And the world will have us believe that faith is unreasonable. Well, that's because the world opposes God. They would have us believe that the testimony of God is a lie. But they only think that because they are wearing blue-tinted glasses and they are not aware of it. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Faith, along with grace, is a gift of God. And faith is new sight. Faith is taking off 
the harmful blue-tinted glasses and seeing reality as it actually is. It's seeing the testimony right before you and seeing it as the truth and not a lie. And through faith in Christ, we have victory over the world. Amen? So if we can end where we started, faith comes first. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, be encouraged today. You're not taking a leap of faith into the darkness. You see things as they actually are because of the gift of God. Praise Him. So your next move is the rest of 1 John. It's loving one another. You have the faith. It's in your heart. You have the Spirit. And so now love one another. But ultimately, this is a gospel message. If you've been striving to work for God's love, if you've been searching for the answers to life's questions, if you thought that being in church and going through the motions and volunteering and giving money, if you thought that all of that was enough, I'm here to tell you that without faith, none of it is worth it. The testimony of God is true. The Spirit, the water, and the blood all testify to the fact that Jesus Christ is the only means to eternal life. He is life itself. What will be your response? There are two options for you. To see the testimony in front of you and to say, yes, that is the truth. Or to call God a liar. Faith or unbelief. What is your response? Let's pray. Lord, I pray for a heart of faith. Spirit, I pray that you would give us the gift of faith. If there's someone in this room who has not yet seen the truth of your gospel, who has not placed your faith in your testimony, I pray that you would give them the gift of faith. That they would be renewed in their mind, that you would forgive their sin, that they'd confess your truth, that Jesus Christ is the only way to eternal life. Thank you so much for that gift, Lord. Thank you for giving us eternal life in you. We love you and we give you the rest of our time together in Jesus' name. Amen.